सहनावतु सहनावतु सहीयं करावहि तेजस्विनावधि तमस्तुमाभिविशावहि ओम शांति 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 So we have two verses from the thirteenth chapter, which are important to study. I hope everybody has a handout, yes. which are important for the study for many reasons. They are definitely important if one is interested in self knowledge. because they are a list of 20 attitudes and values due to which gaining which cultivating which one gains the preparedness to have this self knowledge so that's one of the reasons they are important even if somebody doesn't want vedanta in their life at all even if somebody says i don't want to have anything to do with vedanta still these 20 qualities make one a better human being are needed for a certain kind of sanity to have in the life so we'll be looking at some of these verses in the coming few days in detail to see what they might have to offer us But before that, we have to. It's nice if we are able to look at the context. Why these verses come in the middle of the thirteenth chapter? If these verses are for me to prepare to have self-knowledge, then where should they be? In the first chapter, correct? Why are they in the thirteenth chapter? Somebody said because. It's an intimidating list of qualifications, and had Lord Krishna put them in the first chapter, nobody would have studied after that. They would have said, "This is beyond me. I I, I cannot handle this." So therefore, I am not going to study this at all. Forget the Bhagavad Gita. So therefore, Bhagavan Krishna quietly postponed it, you know, till. About the two thirds of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, and then put it there. One can argue that, and then put it there because by this time we hope one is hooked to the knowledge, and uh, the the chances of leaving and going will not arise. That's you know, that's not really the explanation, but people can argue like that. then again we can argue that perhaps they occur in the 13th chapter because even though they are they have been talked about elsewhere like chapter 3 talks about so many values and attitudes one should have chapter 2 also talks about karma yoga which is all about attitudes and values but then why 13th chapter because by this time being a human being and having a human mind one has forgotten bhul gaya 
So this is like a refresher course. You know, these people in the, what is that, uh, certain professions, especially in the health uh, things and all that, they have to keep taking these, uh, what is that, continuing education core units, CEUs. Why? Because you have to be on top of your profession, the, the new things that have come and the old things you have to revise and keep at it. So therefore, this also could be argued that this is Bhagavan's one unit of continuing education on how to have these qualifications. We can say so many things. But that is not the reason. None of these are the reason why these qualifications come in the 13th chapter. So for to understand that properly, we will take a broad view of this Bhagavad Gita and what this is all about and place in context these, these verses. So we are able to enjoy better what they have to say. So when we look at the Bhagavad Gita, you know, Bhagavataha Gita, that's a very, you know, easy compound, the song of the Lord. In fact, you know, you'll be surprised that there is no such Sanskrit word called Gita, even though it happens to be the name of many Indian women, you know, but there is no such word called Gita. It is uh, as the feminine. Gita is neuter in gender, neuter gender. But since this song of the Lord, which actually the correct, uh, you know, the correct rendition should be Bhagavat Gitam, but it is Gita. It has been made feminine because it is giving knowledge. And since she is an embodiment of knowledge, who is she? Saraswati, Shruti, Mother Shruti, Saraswati, however you take it, since knowledge is always feminine, it has become Gita. It has undergone, gone, the word has undergone an enforced feminization. And that is true of the Hindu tradition. It's very partial to women. Everything is feminine. All the pursuits are feminine. If one wants money, feminine, Lakshmi. And one wants peace at home, another kind of Lakshmi. Harmony, Lakshmi. Abundance in form of grains, etc. Dhanya Lakshmi. Children, Santana Lakshmi. You know, Griha Lakshmi, you know, home, happiness at home. Everything is feminine. And then for those who say, I don't want Lakshmi, then what is left? Saraswati. <laughs> that is also feminine. So these are really the pursuits. And so therefore, the Bhagavad Gita, the word Gita has undergone a feminization here, which is in keeping with the vision of the Shruti, that knowledge, you know, is always coded as feminine. So therefore, Gita Iva Gita, you know, it is like a song. And what are some things about a song? A song is pleasant to hear, correct? Of course, that may not be correct. <laughs> you know, when we look at what the teenagers now are listening, 
it may not be pleasant to hear but for them it is pleasant to hear that's the point you know <laughs> so it is like a song in the sense that it is rhythmic lilting and pleasant to hear why is it pleasant to hear because it is in a meter it's not a prose the same knowledge can be given in prose also and it has and that one is called uh, what is it called tatva bodha that is in prose atma kaha the student asks you know what is the atma who is atma and the teacher replies you know avastha traya sakshi the one who is aware of the one who is aware of being the waker the dreamer and the sleeper panchakosha vilakshana the one that is other than the body mind sense complex and all these places where we make mistakes on the sense of the i this is you know atma like this that is also there in prose that has a certain beauty but the poetry always catches even the most hard hearted person the hardened person the most jaded faded person you know is moved by poetry it's a very beautiful way to learn and so therefore it is called geeta because it is pleasant to hear it is poetic in nature and secondly it is pleasant to hear because the message of the bhagavad geeta is something that is very pleasant it you know she does not say you are useless hopeless and separate from everything else that i already know i don't want the bhagavad gita to tell me i am useless and hopeless i already have come to that conclusion many lifetimes ago and i am continuing with that conclusion she does not say that in fact she looks at me in a wonderful light sometimes that light is too glaring for me to even accept and understand she looks at me in a light that i am not able to look at myself it's like going to the shop and finding a perfect mirror that when i look into it you know it reflects me in the best possible manner full of muscles no fat and then what else you know no wrinkles and uh, it's just uh, i look taller than i am such a kind of a mirror i really like not like one of those disney mirrors those horror mirrors you know like this there will be all these undulating and then what happens as a result of that you know my image of myself is distorted the disney mirrors are already fitted you know behind <coughs> my eyes i already am distorted in my own image in my own image i am completely distorted this is the problem this is why we need the bhagavad gita because she corrects the self you know presentation she corrects the vision of the self of my own self that i have about myself she corrects that totally and in this correction i see you know after this correction is made i see how much i have missed seeing this then of course the question arises why do i have this distorted image of myself why can't i see 
what the bhagavad gita sees of me because that's what the bhagavad gita is it's an 18 chaptered mirror ashtadashadhyagini from tomorrow we can chant the dhyana shlokas so it will be very nice even today after the class we will chant it so she is a mirror of 18 chapters and this mirror why should anybody need why can't i see what she sees in me and what she sees as me why am i not able to see this is actually arjuna's problem this is the this is the reason why the bhagavad gita was given that is why it is called bhagavad gita because it comes directly from bhagavan bhagavatah gita bhagavad gita made into gita so we can take it two ways one is a simple you know what is called a sixth case a genitive compound the song of the lord this is in the active voice or you can take it in another way the song of the lord in the sense of the song for which bhagavan is the subject matter this is this is a kind of a passive construction karmani shashti so in this passive genitive con- construction we get this from the compound when we resolve the compound that for which bhagavan that song for which ishvara bhagavan is the subject matter that is perfect both are equally valid because when something comes from the lord and i hear it as the song of the lord i feel very good that i am learning something directly coming from bhagavan and then you know if you have a uh, you know a song for which the subject matter is nothing other than bhagavan that also is wonderful so both ways we are okay and the gita must be studied it says there is one uh, um, you know like an arati you do for gita on the birthday of the bhagavad gita which comes in december and there it says gita sugita kartavya kim anyaihi shastra vistaraihi this is a prashansa a praise song for the gita and what is that the gita sugita kartavya kartavya must be done what must be done the gita must be studied fully thoroughly and then the praise is in the next line kim anyaihi shastra vistaraihi of what use are all the other shastras when the gita is there meaning it is a compendium of everything that is talked about in the upanishads in the shrutis so all the shrutis collected in one place make this a, a you know a very appealing thing to study very appealing and so therefore this means what it say praise of the bhagavad gita it's the praise of the subject matter of the bhagavad gita which we'll talk about at length and you know every praise 
has has a an element of subjectivity correct yeah every praise has an element of subjectivity you know especially if you look at small children what will they say i love this <laughs> this is wonderful there there are certain hyperboles you know there is this uh, exaggeration so here to the one who wrote this shloka which one geeta sugeeta kartavya maybe exaggerating you know just like somebody takes a trip and goes somewhere or you forget even taking a trip you know you just look at the travel brochure and right? the travel brochure <laughs> exaggerates correct now you have all these edited photoshopped visions of um, you know of the place that you are being summoned to go in the brochure or in the advertisement you know like all these white beaches and blue waters chairs you know umbrellas and little drinks with their own umbrellas and you know all kinds of things are there only thing missing is you that's what they will not show any people when you go there you will not even have will be just crossing over you know sunbathing bodies that the whole beach is you know full filled with filled to capacity with sunbathing bodies you know people are writing something i don't know what they're saying this go look yeah so some bathing bodies all the time they are full of this and then what else has been photoshopped from this travel travel log all these concrete jungle like hotels and buildings where you can't even see the sky like this and so so to here when you say geeta sugeeta kartavya you know, whoever wrote this is subjective subjective analysis it could be it could be a subjective understanding and so it may not have any objective merit because it's somebody's opinion that you should study the gita fully and well we said no it cannot be a subjective opinion why not why are you partial to this person's assessment because you can only exaggerate think about this this is wonderful you can only exaggerate the finite you can never exaggerate about the infinite you know if you tell bhagavan you are infinite okay next that's what he is going to say correct so if you tell bhagavan you are infinite what's going to happen nothing because it's a fact you know if you tell the limitless you are limitless it's not an exaggeration it's not an exaggeration at all because it is it is how it is and bhagavan being limitless you cannot exaggerate because whatever you say is comes short whatever praise is there what happens it is short of it you are the whole aha uh-huh, says bhagavan you are great okay you are omnipotent all right you are omniscient and then bhagwan doesn't say aha this time bhagwan says do you know how to spell that you know <laughs> what comes i or e what comes after this c you know that's what he's going to say because this is already limitless and the the limitless cannot be exaggerated 
is not subject to is not never subject to exaggeration the limitless cannot be improved upon the limitless cannot be edited you cannot subtract anything or add anything to it it makes no difference and that which is limitless which we are looking at from the standpoint of bhagavan and we have defined the limitless as bhagavan is ultimately shown as your own nature this is the purport of the bhagavad gita so therefore there can be no exaggeration that's why we can have ashtotra ashtotra means what 108 names bhagavan is you know very calm placidly listening no problem we can have what is that 1000 sahasranama 1008 names why eight because uh, that time uh, you know one is half asleep maybe sometimes during this or thinking of other things so eight is for all those times then you can also have 100000 names they have lakshartana you know 100000 or sometimes you can repeat the same names again and again and again like the shri rudram is repeated 11 times so lots of possibilities are there everything falls short because what we are talking about is that which has no you know no limits whatsoever it is totally limitless this is what is the is the understanding of the bhagavad gita and so therefore we have to take this seriously when it says gita sugita kartavya the gita has to be studied very very thoroughly because it is given directly by bhagavan see in the beginning we have what sanjaya uvacha you know and dhrit you know in the beginning we have dhritarashtra uvacha then we have sanjaya uvacha arjuna uvacha but then shri bhagavan uvacha it's not shri krishna uvacha krishna has been presented by the author of the bhagavad gita law you know bhagavan vyasa as as the lord of the universe not as an individual this is very important to understand and this is of uh, you know prime importance for our study of the 13th chapter not as an individual not as mr krishna or somebody qualified dr krishna phd no he is presented as ishvara that is why bhagavan and the bhagavan means the one who has in limitless measures all the virtues of omniscience omnipotence all might all knowledge all pervasive all resources belong to the person complete overlordship never overlorded by anybody else fame well known everywhere and the ability to project this universe to sustain the universe and to take it back when the time is up when the universe's time is up to take it back all these are seen as the as the you know as the six bhagas each one is 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 a explanation of the word bhaga 
all knowledge and all resources belong to whom? I mean, if all resources belong to a person, that person would be very greedy. No, complete vairagya, all knowledge, all vairagya, everything. So this is the this is the vision of Bhagavan in the scriptures, in our scriptures, of which Bhagavad Gita forms a part. And this Bhagavan is presented in the first person. Nowhere else, not even in the Upanishad, you have Bhagavan talking. You know, even in the Kena Upanishad, there is Bhagavad Darshanam, because you see, we say this avatara must be not, must be new. This whole avatara vada must have started with the Bhagavad Gita or something like that. Where is the Upanishadic sanction for the avatars? We may ask, but study the Kena Upanishad. In the Kena Upanishad, we have a wonderful anecdote where Indra, Agni, and Vayu are having a cocktail party. They uh, have, you know, they are having, they are celebrating their victory over some, what are they called? These uh, Asuras. Asuras are devotees gone wrong, that's all. So in this battle, they are, you know, they have become victorious. And because they are victorious, what have they done? They have, you know, they have decided to celebrate. Of course, Indra is the leader. And you know, it's no fun waging a war and becoming victorious. When what? When you don't have the, 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 the you know, when you don't have the time to talk about it. Yeah. The whole point in waging a war and, bec and becoming victorious is you should have a few cronies to talk about it and then tell how wonderfully you did. And they should also say, acha, acha, very good. Yeah. That is what the whole thing is. So Indra was saying, did you see? You know, what I did? I just looked at him and he ran away. And why you said, I did foo and he ran away. <laughs> I just, you know, blew at him a little bit. Agni said, I microwaved him, you know, and uh, completely he was just uh, fried totally. And they were all reminiscing how they beat this, beat the enemy. All the inimical forces they, they have banished. And they, they, they were so caught up in their doership that they forgot that, in fact, it is because of Bhagavan that this happened. Their ability to wage a war is because they had hands. Who made the hands? Bhagavan made the hands. You cannot even say mother made the hands and legs, you know. You ask a mother, how do you know, do you know how to make a hand? No, I don't know how to make a hand, you know. Do you know how to make a head? She will say, I don't know how to make a head. you know how to make liver? No. you know how to make kidney? No, I can make rajma, but I don't know how to make kidneys. Kidney beans, okay. So then obviously, there is something else that is happening here. My own abilities come from a source that is other than the I that I'm comfortable with in identifying myself as. My own abilities are given. My body is given, my mind is given, my senses are given. Everything is given. And if everything is given, there must be a giver, correct? And so 
in this they just forgot about the giver. They forgot that these things were given. And what did they do? They just thought themselves as the givers and the relievers of all the asuras and they just forgot about Bhagavan and they started to just rebel. And a luminous being gate crashed the party. And then what? You know, Indra was curious because they didn't know if it is male or female. It looked very androgynous. And then it just came in and it was standing there. And, and then everybody was helplessly attracted to this, you know. And everybody started to wanting to, you know, that 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 uh, uh, celestial being called Yaksha became the life of the party. And Indra felt cheated. This is my party. <laughs> and people should be giving me presents and coming to me. And instead they are going to this unknown entity. And of course, I have pride. I don't have to go there. I'll send her. You know, Agni. Agni, you go and find out who it is. Agni goes and Agni gets a big slap on the face because Agni is asked the fundamental question, who are you? <laughs> By the Yaksha. Who are you? And Agni says, what do you mean? I'm Jata Vedaha. Jata Veda means Jate Jate Vidyate. You know, even when the, the child is born, the doctor touches it to make sure it's alive. That is who I am. That is Agni. That temperature in the body, I am Agni. How come? You know, and then the Yaksha doesn't stop. Yaksha says, Kasmins Vasti. What are you well known for? <laughs> like if I Google Agni, what will I find? <laughs> you know, what are you famous for? Agni says, this must be some alien, you know? Yeah. Non-resident alien this is because this one doesn't know anything. Seems to have come from, from some other loka. Everything I have to explain. He says, you know what? I'm the burner absolute. I burn everything in sight. And Agni gives a small little dried miserable piece of grass. Blade of grass. Can you burn this? Agni is insulted, you know. It's like asking Einstein, what is 2 plus 2, you know? It's a total insult. But somehow he is helplessly attracted to this yaksha. He cannot but oblige. In the days he finds himself obeying. And then, you know, he says, this is just one blade of grass. Just a little tongue of fire is enough. You know, he just unleashes one tongue. Nothing happens. And then what? Then he says, oh, maybe there's a trick. It's coated with some uh, scotch guard or something, which is that fire resistant, you know? Yeah. So maybe a little more. Then he could, he has seven wives in the uh, in the form of flames. Kali, Karali, Manojava, Sulohita, Dhumravarna, Vishwaruchi, Devi, all these. And he says, come on, lassies, you know, we have to go. We have to do a complete operation on this one. There is a trick here. Let us do this. And then nothing, it doesn't even get brown. Still that miserable yellow blade of grass. Then he says, you know, Agni is very clever. He knows when it is time to leave. So he says, I, I, I forgot to turn off something. I have to go. <laughs> and he just goes and stands next to Indra again. He sees, just doesn't give all the details because he looks bad. And so he just says, you know, you send somebody else. Why do you go? 
same thing is repeated. Who are you? What do you mean who? I'm why you? You know? How can you What do you mean you don't know me? I'm Madhurishwa. I go in space. I am well known. Without me, there is no prana, nothing. There is no life without me. So, what are you famous for? I blow everything. I huff and puff and blow everything down. So, it's why you. And the same, uh, what is that? Yeah, a blade of grass that was kept intact from the last unfortunate encounter is presented to him. Can you blow this? He says, oh, come on. You know, nothing happens. Then he says, okay, this is, I have to call in some typhoons, you know, hurricanes. And even though the first word of hurricane is Hari, he forgot that it is Hari, Hari's gift. <laughs> So he just, uh, you know, summoned all the typhoon force winds, all the storms, everything. Nothing happened. The grass did not even move a millimeter. Then he also came back. Then Indra got impatient. He said, I'm only going to go. And when he went, at least the other people had some comical interactions with this yaksha. But when this you know, Indra went. What happened? The Yaksha disappears. But Indra has a lot of Viveka, much more than Agni and Vayu. So right there, he he says some mistake has been made. He, you know, prostrates. He does Namaskara right there. And he sits and meditates. And he says, may my, you know, wrongdoings be revealed to me. I don't know what happened. And at that time, a beautiful woman comes. She is the she is the mother Shruti, Haimavati Uma. And what does she say? Sa Brahma Itiho Vacha. That was that was Bhagavan there. That was Ishvara. That was Brahma. You see? And then of course all three of them study with her. And they all, you know, become great. And then the Upanishad says, through them, we have all been receiving this knowledge. And this is how. And so the point of this story is just this, that usually Brahman or Bhagavan is introduced by someone else. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because Bhagavan is you. There is a kartra karma virodha. There is a contradiction of the subject object. You can objectify everything in the universe except yourself. You the subject. So how can the subject see the subject? Not possible. That's, that was also Krishna's problem in the 11th chapter. How to show myself? And then he gave him some Google Glass or something he gave. And where he could enjoy the whole thing. He had to give him, he had to make the situation such that he could, he, what was one, he purposely separated. This is what he did. So therefore, it is very, it's, it's, it's not, it's very rare, I was going to say, but it's, it's just nearly impossible you to find where Bhagavan is introducing himself as you. That is what makes the Bhagavad Gita so special. Even in the Upanishad where Bhagavan features, it's always introduced by a sage, introduced by the teacher, introduced by, you know, the Shakti, but never Bhagavan introducing oneself as you. So this makes the Bhagavad Gita extremely special. 
and the Gita is written, it has been composed keeping in mind all the message of the Upanishads. And there are two Upanishads on which the Gita relies heavily, three actually. One is of course a Katha Upanishad where the verses have been lifted verbatim from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, sorry, from the Katha Upanishad into the Bhagavad Gita. The second one is the Chandogya Upanishad. And even though there are no quotations from the Chandogya Upanishad, the Gita runs on the Mahavakya Tatvamasi. And I'll tell you exactly when, uh, uh, how, in a bit. Then the third Upanishad that the Bhagavad Gita is influenced by, Lord Vyasa is influenced by, is the Shvetashvatara Upanishad. And here too, a lot of uh, verses have been bodily lifted from the Upanishad and put into the, into the Bhagavad Gita. Sarvendriya Gunabhasam, Sarvendriya Vivarjitam, all those verses. They're, those verses are all from the Kathopanishad. Bodily, verbatim, they have been lifted and put into the Bhagavad Gita. And the Chandogya Upanishad in, has, has been a big influence on the Bhagavad Gita because we find that there is a there is the Mahavakya Tattvamasi that runs through all the chapters. How many words in Tattvamasi? Three. So the Bhagavad Gita is divided, in the tradition looks upon the Bhagavad Gita as divided into chapter 1 through 6, 7 through 12, 13 to 18. You have made into, it made into these, you know, Thirds, you have cut it up in thirds, as it were. So, even though the Mahavakya Tattvamasi, Tat comes first. Here, another uniqueness of the Bhagavad Gita is that Tvam comes first. Why? Because people are not in the place to learn about Tat, which is Bhagavan. Tat means Bhagavan. Jagat Karanam Brahma. But I like hearing about Tvam. Tvam means Aham. Teacher is saying Tvam and you understand as Aham, I. So everybody wants to hear more about themselves, correct? Yeah. Just looking for an excuse. That's why it's very dangerous to ask some questions, you know, especially if you say this happens a lot between the, you know, in the family life, especially between married couples. So one person goes away for a few days, comes back. Other person will ask, did you miss me? Did you miss me? And then the person is forced to say yes. So that there is domestic harmony, okay? <laughs> Even if that may not be true, one says, yes, I missed you. And then they heave a sigh of relief because they think, okay, I have, I, I'm, I'm, I'm now, you know, out of the woods. But then, as, even as they have not even finished exhaling this sigh of relief, the next question comes. What is that? How much? Kitna miss kiya? How much did you miss me? Correct? Yeah. And so like this, one, is, one becomes a scavenger for praise. One is always looking for praise. And if it doesn't come, there are some interesting ways of eliciting it. You know? Sometimes one goes to great extent. 
like the woman who wore this gold, big bordered sari, silk sari, and was hoping everybody will look and say something. Nobody said anything. The party was almost over. She said, this is really bad. She tried some drastic measures, nothing happened. Then she asked for a big glass of water. <laughs> and you know what happened after that. Yeah, accidentally poured it, uh, accidentally within quotes, poured it on the sari and said, oh, yeah, yo, look at this new sari, look at this expensive sari, look at this designer sari, it is spoiled now, it is ruined. Look at this very rare, custom-made, one-of-a-kind sari that is now drenched and it will have water damage. So like this, you know, but the sari is not her. Well, that's what you think because you've been coming to Vedanta classes. That's not what she thinks. <laughs> she thinks I equal to sari. This is what it is, you know. And if you try to tell her otherwise, she's not going to listen. That's where the most of the people are. And so therefore, this learning about oneself and hearing more and more about oneself is, is, a, is a universal delight and a delightful, you know, pastime. And if anything, Bhagavad Gita has studied human psychology very well. Therefore, the first six chapters are all about Tvam. Tvam means Aham, you know. It's all about me, 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 me. Tvam Pada you know, Tvam Pada Enquiry, Enquiry into the word Tvam, Tvam Pada Vichara, Enquiry. The first six chapters talk about this I, you know, first the vision is given that this I is not the one that I normally call the I. It is that which is beyond the body-mind-sense complex but which indwells the body-mind-sense complex which it obtains as the witness of the body-mind-sense complex and which is always the witness, never witnessed. It is always, you know, there. It is never an object, always the subject. This subject is not subject to destruction. That is also told. This subject is beyond destruction. This subject is, is, not, is infinite, limitless, always the same. This is what is told. And then what is told is that, you know, you are straddling two realities. This is what is called Paramarthikam Sat. That this witness is indestructible, is what is the absolute reality. Like even space inside a pot. The pot space you know, let us imagine there is a pot and inside the pot there is space. The pot space, what will it say? If it is not understanding that I am space, it will always feel constrained and blocked. Correct? When, will, when can I come out of this pot? When can this, you know, pot be broken and I can be set free? Oh, I want to join space. But we know that really there is no, no inside and outside with reference to space itself. Is there an outside and inside? No. From the standpoint of the small view of the part space, which thinks itself imprisoned, 
it needs some space guru to come and tell it, you are space. Not space doubt guru, space guru. <laughs> to tell it, you are nothing but space, you are space, space, space. The pot is just comes and goes. You know, just like this, we have room space. You know, so many space, flat space, house space. But really, even though the house, walls, windows, whatever are there, demarcating space. What separates space from space is space. This is very interesting. So really speaking, if the space is inside and outside, and the separating factor between one space and another space is space, that means it is all pervasive. So too, if you are like that. That I indulges all the bodies, all the minds, that one I alone indulges, and it is free of papa punya, it is free of merits, demerits, it is free of all affliction, and it is whole and total, limitless. This is what is told. This is nice to hear. This is very, very nice to hear because it is saying, Change from the usual refrain. Now I'm an idiot, I'm a mortal, I'm growing old, I'm tired, my memory is not like before, and you know, I'm angry, I'm hungry. These are all the general things one thinks about oneself. So all of this is negated, and that what I really want to be is affirmed. Because somewhere inside I want to be this alone, I don't want to be this other one that I believe myself to be. I want to be what the Gita is telling me that I already am. But then of course I'm straddling this other re empirical reality where I find myself confined. In the class everything is wonderful. I hear, I get it, I understand it. As soon as I'm outside, it's almost like the knowledge was left behind in the room and I walked out. A different, it appears to be a different reality. That's why if somebody asks what was taught today, everybody becomes very diplomatic. I think you should yourself experience it. <laughs> that is what everybody will say. You know, because it is not retained. Why is it not retained? It's not that the memory is bad or the intent, the buddhi is not working. It is working, it is not retained precisely because there are opposite messages being SMSed all the time in, in the mind. And therefore, there is no room for this. The room has to be made. That is what is talked about in the first six chapters. How to make this room for this knowledge? To internalize this vision, we have to have a lifestyle that is conducive to gaining this vision. And that lifestyle is to free oneself from thinking of oneself as the doer. Doer means agent. So the Gita urges in the first six chapters to free oneself from being an agent. Because one is not an agent. Really one is not an agent. Oh, then if I'm not an agent, what am I? Victim, the answer will come. And there is, and everybody feels like a victim. 
victimized by society, victimized by the neighbors, victimized by, you know, everyone. And so therefore, this victim consciousness, this victim ideology is very tempting to go into. It feels safe. And it also feels like the more I'm a victim, other people will come and pay attention to me. All the time I can be complaining, I don't feel well, I, don't, I feel mistreated, I feel unloved, I feel like an idiot. I can keep saying that. You know, they say, no, what is it? The, the squeaking wheel gets the oil. Yeah. So I can keep squeaking, I can keep, you know, complaining. But you're not the only one, because you're not the only one who, who had this bright idea. All seven billion people in the world have the same idea. And everyone is complaining, there is a cacophony in the universe. Neither are you getting anything that you wanted, nor is anyone else. So this is, so the, the victimization puts, it's like digging a hole and putting yourself into it and burying yourself, you know, alive. It's a very difficult space. It's a difficult space and it's a space that is fraught with a lot of limitations. Because in the beginning it looks tempting. If I'm the victim, I'm the wronged one and I should shout it out because I have been wronged in so many ways. But very soon what happens is that you find that you cannot get, uh, get yourself out of it. And that nobody is bothered either. And same thing with identifying as an agent alone. I am the doer, I am the shaker and the mover of things. That leaves one with a sensation of guilt. Doership brings on guilt. Definitely, if not today, tomorrow it will bring it on. I'll ask you tomorrow. <laughs> Doership brings on guilt. And identifying as a victim brings on hurt. This is what it is. So guilty and hurt. Hurt and guilty. Guilty, hurty. That's what it is. Hurty, guilty. And sometimes guilty marries hurty. And it's a match made in heaven. Because the one who is guilty, you know, will keep on apologizing. And for the hurt person, even seven lives of apologies are not enough. Yeah. They will stay together. Because there is something happening there. So this, you see, the guilt comes from feeling, see, it is directly connected to the identification of oneself as a doer. But why is it, why should the doer feel guilty? Because the doer feels insufficient, inadequate. This inadequacy of the self the self-inadequacy is a universal starting point before one is studying the Gita. Because of which what happens, you know, because of this inadequacy, self-inadequacy, what happens is that, you know, when one identifies as a doer and in the process of doing, I don't like what I have done. Oh my God, what I have done? I have hurt this one or I am not adequate. I did not get what I want, so immediately it just turns into guilt. The title of the doer brings or brings makes one a sad and guilty person. 
then what about the if, the, if the agent becomes a guilty person? If identification as an agent makes me guilty, what about the identification with a victim? It makes me feel always hurt. When I am an agent of action, when I identify as an agent of action, I am bothered by my own omissions and commissions, life after life, constantly. The Upanishad also reiterates this. Kimaham sadhuna karavam, kimaham papam karavam iti. Why did I do the wrong thing? How come I didn't do the right thing? Like this, one is always lamenting. And when one identifies as not an agent but a victim, then one is constantly plagued by other people's omissions and commissions. In the one instance, I have to deal with my own omissions and commissions. In the next instance, it is the other people's omissions. Why did they do this to me? Why did they not do this to me? So this is a very miserable state of being. And not that one is only hurt and another one is only guilty. There are certain predominant uh, ways of being, but still, everybody is both guilty and hurt. Because in certain circumstances, one identifies as a doer, in certain circumstances, one identifies as a victim. This is the real problem. And therefore, the Bhagavad Gita advises in the first six chapters to not latch on to these identities. Oh, so if I don't latch on to this identity, who is the doer? Put, put everything on Bhagavan. So I consciously project my doership onto Bhagavan. And even though I think I'm projecting, it's not a projection at all. It is a fact that Bhagavan is the doer. And I'm just taking the credit for it. That's all. So I let go of the doership. And therefore, I learn also to accept what comes with gratitude and, you know, and a spirit of acceptance. And so therefore, I eschew, I shun completely the identification with the victim, victim role. I don't take on either the guilt or the hurt. So the first six chapters talk on how to hone these identities. How to identify myself as other than the hurt one, other than the guilty one. And how in, in this spiritual growth of accepting what is, I come closer to qualifying for these teachings. So the first six chapters is all about one. And the second six chapters is Tatpada Vichara. Tatpada means what? Bhagavan. Suddenly in the seventh chapter, Bhagavan is introduced. And this Bhagavan is not what you think, not a guy in the sky, <laughs> not someone who is, you know, who has birthed the universe and then gone away somewhere. Put the universe, Jagat is up for adoption because Bhagavan has, you know, abandoned the Jagat. In many traditions, we have this problem. No. You know, the very sophisticated and unique understanding of Bhagavan in the, in the tradition, in the Vedic tradition, is that, is very simply put, that which is called creation 
is not separate from the creator. The creator, of course, is not the creation. Creation is the creator. It is not separate from the creator. Just like each and every artifact made of clay is not separate from clay. The pot, the jug, the lid, whatever you make of clay, the cup, the saucer, whatever you make of clay is all clay all the time. It is made by clay, it is sustained by clay, it goes back to clay. In fact, the word cup, lid, pot have no existence at all. It borrows its existence from the clay. And if you think otherwise, then what, what will happen? Then, you know, you try to take the pot and leave the clay behind. Can you do that? Can you take the pot and leave the clay behind? Because all you want is only pot and pot is an entity. If you insist, then I will say, take the pot but leave the clay behind. You cannot, you know, yatra yatra pot, tatra tatra clay. But you can't reverse this. This is a very interesting thing. You cannot say yatra yatra clay, tatra tatra pot. No. See, this is how you learn Sanskrit. <laughs> you cannot say wherever there is, you know, clay, there should be pot. You cannot say that. It would not be correct. Because the clay can be like a lump on the roadside. It can be in the form of a figurine of Lord Krishna. It can be in the form of jug, lid, cup, saucer, pot, everything. So this is what has to be understood, is that this Bhagavad that is presented is, is in the first person. Maya Tatam Idam Sarvam, ninth chapter. By me the whole universe, Idam Sarvam, this whole Jagat is, you know, pervaded. Matsthani Chabhutani, everything exists in me, Bhagavan says. And the very next verse, Oh Arjuna, look at this magic. You know, this is Indian magic. We don't need slate of hand. We don't need a hiding place. We don't need to make the pot disappear. While holding the pot, I can make the pot disappear. Look, it's not even here. So, while holding the pot, I can make it disappear right in front of the eyes by shifting the vision onto clay, its source. Najamatsthani Bhutani. Everything resides and rests in me, but I am not any one of them. I am not any one of them. I am uniquely myself. How is this? Because that's how it is. That which takes on any form, any name, must be essentially nameless and formless, correct? This is logical. That which has the capacity to project itself into so many is itself one and only one. This is what the whole thing is. And so, therefore, Bhagavan is presented as someone who is who is present in the universe. And this form of Bhagavan in English is called immanent. Immanent as well as transcendental. 
Because if we say Bhagavan is present in the universe, then what happens? What is the very next conclusion? Bhagavan has become the universe. There is no more Bhagavan left. This is not so. Just like you sustain the dream, you, you don't become the dream. You sustain the dream. Your own knowledge, your own memory, your own powers are manifest as the dream. You uphold the dream and then what happens? The dream resolves into you. So too, this whole universe is like a dream of Bhagavan, sustained by that, resolves into that. Very beautiful. But then still I don't understand. Well, that's because that Bhagavan is you. How come I can't see Bhagavan because that Bhagavan is you? How come I'm not having darshan because that Bhagavan is you? How, how to experience Brahman? You, whatever you experience is Brahman alone. Yes, I know that, but I would like to still experience Brahman. <laughs> if Brahman is a special experience, it will become finite, it will become limited. We are talking of that which is limitless. Then the people will ask, you know, how come certain people, even somebody, such a wrongdoer like Hiranyakashupu got darshan of Bhagavan? I am not even that bad, you know. I am a good fellow and I am not getting darshan of Bhagavan. <laughs> you know, this is the, and that is why the, the, the second uh, half, second third, sorry, of the Bhagavad Gita talks about this at length. Grigeva natu drishyate. The seer is never an object of sight. Didn't understand that? <laughs> Should I repeat it? <laughs> Siri, Siri is also attending class. <laughs> she was just echoing what people were feeling. So, <laughs> so this is the whole thing that all that is here has the presence of Bhagavan, including this body-mind-sense complex. When you say all, you have to include the body-mind-sense complex. Everything that is here has the presence of Bhagavan and that presence is you. But then how will I come to know Bhagavan? How do you come to know you? Are you here? Yes, you know, nowadays the answer is coming quickly. After asking it after a few visits. Yeah. Yes, I am here. You can never say no. How do you know you are here? You didn't have to consult Siri. You didn't, <laughs> you didn't have to consult anybody else. You didn't have to look into a search engine. You didn't have to call the significant other to find out if you are here or not. How do you cognize your presence? By which means of knowledge is your presence is known to you? Which what means of knowledge do you use? Do you use uh, you know sight? Do you use hearing? Do you use anumana? I think therefore I am somebody tried to use anumana. Yeah, Descartes. He said, I think therefore I am. And what did I say? I said, you know. He was putting day cart before day horse. <laughs> 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 this is what he was doing. 
But to give him credit to the end of his life, he said, I am, therefore I think. Ah, he said that afterwards. I think, therefore I am. Somebody tried to infer the presence of oneself. This is a big philosopher. You cannot infer yourself. The inferrer is you. And then somebody who thought I'm very learned said, you come to know about you from the Bhagavad Gita, from the Upanishad, Shabda Pramana. You have to learn that you exist from, by going to the teacher. If you don't know that you exist, how will you go to the teacher? <laughs> you know? No. The Upanishad does not reveal the self. The Upanishad only removes the mistake attached to the self, which is self-revealing. Did you get that? Yeah. The Upanishad removes wrong notions attached to this self, which is ever-present, which reveals itself and reveals everything else. So there are two ways you can come to know of things. One is called Pramana Siddha. What is Pramana Siddha? You come to know of it by deploying a means of knowledge like eyes, ears, etc. And the other one is called Swatas Siddha. Itself, it is evident. I know I am Aham Asmi. This itself is enough for us. The whole Vedanta is standing on this premise that you are self-evident. The day you cease to be self-evident, we will pack up shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing more to say. Everything, the whole premise comes tumbling down like a house of cards. The day you cease to be self-evident. Everything goes down the drain. But as long as you are self-evident, you know, we will have some, you know, we will have a job. The teachers will have a job. Because as long as one is self-evident, all kinds of wrong notions attach to the self because of I don't know who I am. The self becomes a sitting duck for all kinds of mistakes. And therefore, this whole desire to see Bhagavan, I know I am Bhagavan, but how to see? Look in the mirror, that's all it is. <laughs> because I want to objectify the subject. And I'm out of control when I want to do that because that is how I, you know, deal with the Jagat. That is how I come to know and enjoy the various things in the Jagat by treating them as an object. I want to do the same with the subject. How will that happen? But then how did Bhagavan, you still haven't answered the question, how did Bhagavan come in front of Hiranyakashipu? Well, you know, Bhagavan being Bhagavan has what is called Maya Shakti. And with that Maya Shakti, Bhagavan can appear in certain ways. But that's what I want. I want Bhagavan to appear. Bhagavan has already appeared. As soon as you said, I am, Bhagavan also said, I am. That is what it is. That is what Bhagavan said. And this Bhagavan is presented in two ways from the 7th to the 12th chapter. The first way is as you just we have just been talking about that. You are the one that is, you know, the witness of the body-mind complex is the cause of the jagat. That same sentient self-conscious being, that which you call I, 
when you sift away all the things that are finite, what remains is the witness, the observer, that is Bhagavan. That is the first, what is called, you know, Swarupa Lakshana. It is conscious, Chit, it is present, it exists, Sat, and it is limitlessly conscious and limitlessly existent, so much so that it can populate the entire jagat through taking on various forms, various ways of being. That same self-conscious, limitless presence. Self-conscious means what? It is conscious of itself, everything becomes evident to it. In other words, it's all knowledge. Oh, you mean I'm all knowledge? Yes, you are all knowledge. But I don't know Chinese. <laughs> yeah. But what do you know? You know you don't know Chinese, correct? Every don't know has to be preceded by I know. Think about it. This is fascinating. There are so many things I don't know. How do you know? This is an ontological question. How do you know that you don't know? How do you know? I just know because I am the witness of everything that I know. I also know what I don't know. That I know never becomes I don't know. And that is what is called jnana. And since I know what I know, since I don't, and since I also know what I don't know, I can say I am sarvajna, all-knowing. Really? So it's fantastic. So this is the first presentation of Bhagavan from chapter 7 to 12. And the second way in which Bhagavan is presented, is like the orders in the universe. All the orders that are there in the universe. You know, the, the wind blows, it rains, sun is out, and then the seasons change. Now it is spring, all the flowers are in bloom. Later it will be fall, everything falls. And then it is winter. And there is something infallible about the seasons, climate change notwithstanding. There is something there which is infallible about gravity, the gravitational force. There is something there that is infallible about all these forces, strong force, weak force, all these forces, they have a certain infallibility because of which they can be studied. That is why we say it is, the, it is a law. While in certain traditions it may be the habit to say Bhagavan is the giver of the law, the giver of the mandates. For us, Bhagavan is a manifestation, not a mandate. The laws are not a mandate of Bhagavan, it's a manifestation. Then there is the law of dharma, again sensed in every heart. What is right? One knows. What is wrong? One definitely knows. And then there is a queasy feeling when one has to go against dharma. A private queasy feeling because it's not something that you can discuss with others but you feel uncomfortable. That means what? You know what is right. This is the law of dharma. The law of karma. As you sow, so shall you reap. This is a law. But this is not like the law of physics. 
because it is more sensed than belief and belief based rather than proven, scientifically proven. So this is also a law, the law of karma. This is all this. So Bhagavan is manifest as dharma. So when one follows dharma, one is close to Bhagavan. This is all told in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter, chapter 7 to 12. And it is also told that this Bhagavan is the same Sat Chit Ananda, that same self-conscious consciousness, all knowledge, this being who is manifest has worn the hat of what? Jagat Karta, Jagat Samharta, Jagat Dharta, the one who is upholding the universe, the one who is creating the universe, unto whom the universe is being, you know, resolved. All these, this is a hat that Bhagavan wears. And Jiva also wears a hat. What is this hat? The hat that is removed and used as a begging bowl. <laughs> that is the hat of the Jiva. Give me, give me. I don't have anything. I'm a yachaka. Yachaka means beggar. Yeah, this is the Jiva's hat. So with this hat, I become a beggar. And with that hat, that same Sachidavanda is known as Bhagavan. Just a costume change. That's all. And Maya is the one who is a, she's a, you know, seamstress par excellence. She stitches the robes of Bhagavan, puts all gold, silver. In fact, she lines them with planets and galaxies, a grand robe. And Jiva also comes and says, can you make something for me, please? She says, sure. What does she make? A tattered cloak lined with tears and fears. This is what it is. The border is full of teardrops. And wearing this, you know, one feels so bad. Oh, this is terrible. This is horrible. I just feel so bad. This is all torn and I feel poor. No wonder I have taken off the hat and I'm using it as a begging bowl. This is my lot. I am this much only. I am tired. I am a tired samsari. I am inside samsara. All these conclusions come because one identifies with the robe rather than what is in the robe, rather than the indweller of the robe. This is told to us. So really speaking, this chapter 7 to 12 is, is understanding Bhagavan from, from these two facets or manifestations. One is as the truth of you, as that presence, unchanging presence in the universe, which is all sentient, all knowledge and limitlessly so. And the other one as the creator, sustainer and resolver of the universe. One with a form and function in relation to the manifest universe. These two things are given from chapters 7 to 12. Then okay, then the vision should be complete. Correct? Jiva has been talked about, Ritat has been talked about, 7 to 12, Thwam has been talked about, 1 to 6. Then what is left? Asi. <laughs> so the chapters 13 to 18 will unfold the word called Asi. Asi means what? Tattvam ah. Asi. You are Bhagavan. That means Bhagavan here. You are Bhagavan. That unfoldment of that are. Because it's nice to think, you know, people think of it in different ways. 
you should have been Bhagavan a long time ago, now it is too late. Maybe you were Bhagavan in a last life, it will never happen now. Maybe in the future you will be Bhagavan, but certainly not now. This is the temptation to look at it like this. Therefore, the word are, meaning, you know, indef uh, indefinite present tense, no time involved. To be, I mean, this is the verb to be, right? From which are has come. You are, meaning right here, right now, without undergoing any change, you are Bhagavan. You know, then of course the only question that you cannot say I object. Because if you object, then you are stuck with the begging bowl, which is the hat, the sad hat, mad hat, you know. And so therefore you cannot object. There is only one question to ask, how? How is this possible? In other words, do I have to, you know, discard these robes, these tattered robes? If so, how to discard these robes? And do I have to disrobe Bhagavan too on the other side? In order to see this unity of Satchidananda, what should I, what do I have to do? And that is why the, the beingness of, of this Jiva, as the, whose being is very, whose very being is Bhagavan, is unfolded in chapters 13 to 17. Even though the, 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 the knowledge of Karma Yoga back in chapter 3 is very, very practical. In fact, chapter 13 to, to 18 are extremely, you know, wonderful. This is what one lo loves to call Vedanta in day-to-day -day life. This is what people keep asking. What about Vedanta application in day-to-day -day life? As though I'm talking of once a year how to apply. <laughs> Whatever we talk about is day-to-day -day alone. No, no, but you know how to, some practical tips. <laughs> Give some tips. Well, you know, the tips are coming because this is what chapter 13 to 18 is all about. It's all about all kinds of tips. And so you are ticked off to <laughs> understand, you know, the ticked off jiva is now tipped off to understand one's own glory and to abide in it in a very, very practical way. In other words, how should my demeanor be? How should my, you know, the, the way in which I walk in the world be in order to understand this truth of myself? How should I proceed? How should I go about my life? Because it feels like I'm split in two realities. Actually, there are not no two realities. Just like we had one more, uh, you know, retreat earlier. Two birds, right? In the Mundaka Upanishad. How many birds are there? One. Not two birds. One is the light, the other one is the shadow. When the shadow goes rogue, then we have the problem of samsara. The shadow starts saying, I need a social security number, I am an individual. And then the shadow starts demanding that, you know, you have to listen to me. So instead of the shadow following the person, the person starts to follow the shadow. This is all that the shadow is the fruit of self-ignorance. And so, how to let the shadow remain a shadow in the shadows and how to not let it, uh, you know, come in my way of 
understanding this, how to deal with the with this whole with this whole vision. This is what is described in from seven to thirteen. Sorry, from thirteen to eighteen. And of these thirteen to eighteen chapters, the the thirteenth chapter itself. The thirteenth chapter itself is complete and very, very poignant and important for this study. Study of how to be myself and how to be more and more like the Bhagavan I already am. How to relegate the shadow self to the to the background. How to let the light, which is myself, come out. See, we are just so appropriate. So. How to just deal with this ahankara? All these are talked about in in various beautiful ways, wonderful ways. Talking about the three kinds of gunas, talking about daivi sampatti and asuri sampatti, the godly qualities and not so godly qualities. How to have? How to do this? All this is talked about in 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 wondrous detail. The thirteenth chapter has a very, very important place in this because it is it occurs right at the beginning of this section, and the beginning of the section are is are always primed to give a lot more information, and so the beginning of the section here in the thirteenth chapter puts a certain uh, makes a certain setup, and then gives the following verses. That we are going to study, which occur right in the beginning. So we will chant them today, and then we will start looking at them tomorrow. Amanitvamadam hitvam ayim sakshanti rajavam ajaryopasanam chaujam sayyamatmavihigraha indriyakeshu vairagyam. अनंतर एवच जन्म मृत्यु जराव्याधि दुख दोषानुदर्शनम् असत्यरन विश्वंगा पुत्रदारगुहादिशु नित्यंच समचित्तत्वं इष्टानिष्टोपपत्तिशु मैचानन्ययोगेन भक्तेरव्यभिचारिनी विविक्तदेशसेवित्वं आरतेर्जनसंसदी अध्यात्मज्ञाननित्यत्वं तत्परन्नाम एतत्ज्ञानमितिप्रोतम् अज्ञानं वंडरफुल सेट ऑफ वर्सेस, वेरी प्रैक्टिकल। आफ्टर दिस नोबडी विल हैव द क्वेश्चन, व्हाट आर द प्रैक्टिकल टिप्स ऑफ वेदांता? यू कैन गेट एनी मोर प्रैक्टिकल देन दिस। सो वी विल सी देर आर सर्टेन क्वालिटीज दैट आर मेंशन, हैविंग विच इट इज इजी टू असिमिलेट एंड इम्बाइब द विजन। वी सी दैट Om Shanti 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 
Yeah, so the question here, I'm repeating the question because everybody cannot hear. But, he, huh? but uh, when oh. I follow the observer, yeah. he always says, do what is needed more. Yeah. Do what is needed more. Yeah. It's the same answer for any situation. Right. But the part of me when sometimes when the mind wakes up, it feels that I'm so not disinterested. I mean, disinterested. Yeah. But I'm, um, so I'll repeat the question. So we, if if I follow the mind, the question is that what happens is that I'm actually following Raghavamsha's. So if I follow the observer or the witness, what happens is that you know there is a strange sense of disconnect. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. So there is a strange sense of disconnect. And so I feel like I'm not participating in my life. Uh, actually, you are. It's not that you're not participating in the life. You're participating in the life differently than what one is used to. Because before one comes to Vedanta, there's a lot of drama. You know, one is a drama king and a drama queen. Yeah, there's a lot of drama. And sometimes in that dramatic way, people are used to relating in that dramatic way. And because of that, what happens is that, you know, people start thinking that this is, this is what life is. When the drama portion reduces, you start feeling a little more dispassionate. It's okay. You are participating. You are fine. One more question. Okay. These observers some things that we tell us, no, no. Observer is Bhagavan. Observer is you, the witness. Yeah. Yes. In the context of Dvaita and Advaita, yeah. which path is Bhagavad Gita leading us to? Yeah. Bhagavad Gita is saying Advaita because it is very clear at the end. You know, in the end of the each chapter, we chant this. What do we say? You know? Krishna Arjuna Samvade and Brahma Vidyayam Yoga Shastra. It has two topics. I'll talk about it tomorrow. Brahma Vidya, which is understanding yourself as Brahma. It doesn't say you are two. Otherwise, Bhagavan would not be saying in the ninth chapter, Mayatatam Idam Sarvam. And so, therefore, it is, and it would not be saying Tattva Masi. It would not be following that. You know, that whole layout, it would not be following. And for these reasons, it is it is definitely giving the message of the Upanishads from the standpoint of Advaita. That being said, there are a number of commentators from the Dvaita traditions that have commented on it. And the Shastra gives us the hermeneutical freedom to look at it in three ways. From the, from the standpoint that I am separate from Bhagavan and I am just a sad devotee and I will never be equal to Bhagavan. And then from the standpoint, I'm a part of Bhagavan or to say I'm none other than Bhagavan. We look at it from the standpoint of, from Advaita where we sit, we look at it as, you know, you're never separate. And we can accommodate those two standpoints very easily. There is no fight there. There is no conflict there. There is no conflict precisely because of the fact that these two are points of view, really. They are points of view. 
That notion of separation is a point of view. And the notion that I have to become one is a point of view from the ignorant individual who feels anxious, separated and alienated and disconnected from the total. So it is valid. And if you ask the Dvaitin, you know, what do you want? They will say, I want to become one with Bhagavan. We say you are never separate to begin with. It's just coming at it differently. There is no problem. There is no conflict. Yeah. In our discussion today, you said that we know what is right and we know what is wrong, which generates a sense of uh, uh, uneasiness when we perform wrong action. Where does that spring from? That is Bhagavan. That is manifestation of Bhagavan as the order of Dharma. That is what it is. It is inbuilt. It's a sensor that is inbuilt into every jiva, more so human beings. Even the dog looks a little guilty sometimes, you know, but it doesn't understand why. Bhagavan in the form of a sensor is called dharma, yes. Om sarve bhavantu sukhinaha, sarve santu niramaya, sarve bhagraan pashyantu, makaschit dukkha bhagavet, Asatoma